Hello, you're listening to Speaking of Law Firm Leadership. I'm Ken Landis, Vice President and Senior Laws Prevention Counsel at Alas. This is our fourth and final episode in a series we call Notes to My Younger Self, Lessons on Law Firm Leadership. In this series, we asked several Alas firm leaders what advice they would have given to their younger selves to help them better manage their firms when they first stepped into a leadership role. In this particular podcast, we will discuss what role managing partners should play in choosing their successors. With me today is Roger Warren of Steptoe & Johnson LLP in Washington, D.C. For over 100 years, Steptoe has earned an international reputation for vigorous representation of clients before governmental agencies, successful advocacy in litigation and arbitration, and creative and practical advice in structuring business transactions. Roger has been with Steptoe for over 40 years. He served as the chair of Steptoe from 2003 through 2013. Before, during, and after his tenure as chair, he has successfully handled a wide range of complex commercial litigation matters in courts throughout the United States. For example, for more than three decades, Roger has been lead counsel in representing insurers in numerous major nationwide insurance coverage and reinsurance disputes. Roger is also recognized as one of the leading legal malpractice defense lawyers in the D.C. metropolitan area, having defended dozens of international law firms against professional liability claims. Finally, Roger was on the board of Alas for 10 years, serving as its chair for two years. Welcome, Roger. Glad to have you with us. Good to be with you today, Ken. So let's start with this, Roger. Please tell me about how you were selected chair at Steptoe. We have an unusual structure that may not be appropriate for other firms, but we've had it for at least 30 or 40 years. People don't nominate themselves to run for chair. We have an elected committee called the nominating committee, and their only job, interview all the partners and to identify the individual or individuals that they think should serve as chair. We don't have a title of managing partner, so chair is in effect our managing partner, but we have a second job, which is the vice chair position, which does a lot of the administrative things. And the nominating committee makes nominations for both the chair and the vice chair. So I was one of those nominated by the nominating committee and then served after I was elected. Because this podcast is about whether managing partners should have involvement in selecting their predecessor, was your predecessor involved in your selection? I believe he was. He did, a, I thought, an outstanding job. And when he was in the job, we then had term limits of six years. The term was two years, and then the most you could be elected was for three twos for six years. So if it had been my personal choice, he would have served more than the six years. But he was limited out at that point. And so he he did have a role in who should be his successor. I don't know what role exactly he had because He went in and and appeared before the nominating committee that nominated me. I'm sure that if he had said, over my dead body, Warren shouldn't do it, I don't think they would have nominated me. So I have to presume that even though I may not have been his first choice, that he was comfortable with that choice. And actually, after I became chair, it seemed obvious that he was. When you were selected, did you have a specified term? I did. I had the same term that that my predecessor, Alon Bachnay, had. I had a two-year term. The terms were limited to three terms, so six years. That was one of the things I changed at the end of my term, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, because when I introduced you and from your bio, I picked up that you served for 10 years. So what happened? 
2008-2009 happened. The U.S. economy went in the skids, and my partners decided that it wasn't time to change management of the firm. And so they they took the position, well, we made the rule that there were only three two-year terms, but we can change that rule. And so they elected me to a fourth two-year term, thinking the recession would be over in six months. It wasn't. And so they elected me to a fifth uh, two-year term. Those five twos added up to 10. But at the end of that time, I said, quoting Roberto Duran, no mas. And so I said, uh, when we select our new chair, I would recommend that we change the rules. I think two years is too short a time. And I think three twos may be too short a time if the chair is doing a reasonably good job. So we changed the term from a two-year term to a four-year term. And we imposed a two-year, two-time term limit. So eight years is the total that people can now serve unless we change the, the, the rules again. So that's how I ended up with 10. And the current tenure is a four-year term. And you can be elected to a second one of those. Now, when your term was ending, what role did you have in the selection of your successor? I was not elected, nor should I have been, to the nominating committee. But I did spend, in two sessions, more than four hours with them, talking with them about what I thought were important considerations for the strategic direction of the firm following my term as to who the candidates would be that I would consider to be people they should consider for the term. But by the time I testified or met with the nominating committee a second time, it was clear that a couple of people who I thought would have done a good job had taken their names out of the hat. They said, no, we're not interested. We don't want to do it. So there was a a group of about three people the committee was considering. They told me that ahead of time. And so what I did is I commented on each of the three. I thought it would be inappropriate for me to pick my own successor or to lean too heavily on who it should be. So what I did is I commented on each of those three, listing what I thought were their strengths that would make them a good candidate for the chair, but areas that they may not have been quite so strong in. But I deliberately tried not to put my thumb on the scale for any one of the three. One of those three is someone I had worked with a lot and I had a great degree of personal affection for. If I would have put my thumb on the scale, it might have been for that person. But I had the following concern which is all three of those were among our three most valuable partners. I was afraid that if it looked like I was trying to handpick my successor, who'd been someone who'd worked for me for a number of years, that we were in danger of possibly alienating or losing the other two, and they would no longer be at the firm. One of the things I'm happy about is those other two are still at the firm today, as is my successor. So we were able to do the transition People were disappointed that they didn't get it because I think all three of them would have liked to get it, but they weren't sufficiently disappointed, the two that didn't get it, that they decided to look elsewhere. Okay. So looking back with the benefit of hindsight, do you think that that was the right decision? I think the way it played out at the time, it was probably the right decision, but I'm not suggesting that the the outgoing chair should be uh, quite as hands-off as I was in all circumstances. The job has gotten more complicated and more challenging since I had it. Every year there seem to be newer and different challenges that the chair is going to have to consider. It seems to me that if the candidates that are being considered have had substantial management responsibility, you know, heading an office, heading a practice group, heading the compensation committee, being on our management committee for a number of years, then 
it's probably less important. But if you're considering somebody who has not had that experience, I think it might be more important that the outgoing chair have a more active role in it, because I think that it's, it's not a job for rookies. You need to have people that have had substantial experience, and they're not going into it with blinders on. They're fully aware of both the economic challenges, the political challenges, the competition challenges. And if they haven't served in some of those roles that I just identified, I would have a problem with that, and I would probably have a more active role if it looked like our nominating committee was going to head in that direction. You talked a little bit at the outset sort of about the nuts and bolts of how Steptoe chooses the chair. If I understand it correctly, Steptoe's chair is nominated by a committee that is elected by your partners solely to nominate the chair. Do I have that right? Got that absolutely right. And they nominate just not only the chair, but the vice chair. They have no other function. They're elected solely for that purpose. They're elected at large, one person, one vote. We've been doing it that way for 30 years. General understanding is a lot of times the management committee at most firms is involved in this process. And I would think some of the listeners might want to ask you that question. Wouldn't it be better if the management committee, the people charged with running the firm, would make this recommendation? It's a very fair question and one that if I hadn't seen the way this played out, I would have been concerned about. But since our management committee is also elected, not appointed, and the nominating committee is elected, as is the compensation committee, we have a lot of elections, that it's not unusual that people that get elected to the nominating committee are also serving on the compensation committee or the management committee. And 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 so there's almost always a substantial overlap. And the only exception to that is if someone is being considered as a chair or vice chair and they're on the nominating committee, they need to withdraw because it doesn't want it. We don't want to have an inside baseball situation. That would be a, an instance where somebody that may already be involved in management, but they're considering them for chair. They could be on the management committee, but they can't be nominated for chair if they are serving on the nominating committee. So they would have to withdraw. Has the nominating committee ever made a suggestion or recommendation that was rejected by the partners? The answer is no, not for either position, not the chair or the uh, vice chair position. Once in the distant past, we had a situation where a chair who was being recommended for a second term became actively involved in the election of the vice chair, and that was not particularly well received. I think as a result of that, we've tried to eliminate some politicking, and I think we've been fairly successful on that. What would have happened if somebody would have nominated you or asked you to be on the nominating committee when you were still the chair? Is that a possibility? I've not gone back and looked at our partnership agreement, but if I had been elected, I would withdraw because I don't think that's appropriate. Because one of the things that the nominating committee has to do if they're considering a new chair, and every time there's an election, one of the things they're doing, even if the chair is eligible for another term, that chair is not entitled to another term, whether it's a second term or a third term. So they're evaluating the performance of the chair if it's after their first term. And so it would be inappropriate for the person being evaluated to be on that committee if you want an objective view of that. Even if in my circumstance, the last time I couldn't be elected because I was term limited, I still think it would be inappropriate because one of the things you have to decide is, do you want to continue you know, the way and the priorities that Roger Warren had given, or do you think it's time for a change? 
you know, that we, we need to head a new different direction with respect to either opening offices or closing offices or emphasizing more lateral hires or de-emphasizing a certain practice group is less practical, less profitable. And so that's one of the functions of the nominating committee is to evaluate the performance of the current chair. And that influences whether they want to go that same direction again or change directions by picking someone new. How many people on the nominating committee? There typically were five. I think it's now been expanded to seven. Does the nominating committee have any continuing responsibilities after the chair is proposed and elected? They do not. After those have been elected, they fade into the mists of time uh, and maybe they'll get elected (laughs) in subsequent years, but they have no continuing role. The chair of the firm has a probably the best view of the leadership, the best potential leaders for the firm. And you're proposing that in your situation, you didn't want to put your thumb on the scale. How do they know? Some people would say you're in the best position to know who would, should be the successful. What are they considering? What are they looking at? How do they know who would be the best person? How they know, and I'll take my situation as an example, is I spent three hours with them, with the nominating committee. They knew fully my views as to what was needed, what were the priorities of the firm and whatever. So I didn't have to be on the committee for them to know because you know I came in and testified. They interview every partner, but the outgoing chair gets as much time as she or he wants to share with them their views. The only thing I felt short of is I felt short of picking my successor. I didn't think I should say this person should do it. I described what I thought the priorities should be. I thought the characteristics of the chair that were important. I went through the three candidates and said what I thought their strengths were. I really was able to let them know what my views were without having been on the committee. I find this to be fascinating. I, I think it's 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 unique in some respects, but I do think it takes a lot of the politics out of it, which it sounds like you're sort of confirming. And I think that's great for our listeners. I really appreciate you taking the time today to uh, sit down with me and talk this through. So uh, until next time, everyone, this has been Speaking of Law Firm Leadership. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Ken. This podcast is provided for educational purposes to assist lawyers in avoiding ethics violations, malpractice suits, other professional liability claims, and management liability claims. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. The recommendations contained in this podcast are not necessarily appropriate for every lawyer or law firm. In determining the best course of action, lawyers should consider the applicable legal authorities and all relevant facts and circumstances. Copyright 2023 by Attorneys Liability Assurance Society. All rights reserved.